Okay, so as Dole mentioned, we've begun this series that I've entitled Praise and Thanksgiving. And last week I mentioned that in all my years of preaching, I don't think I've, I've neglected the first part of that, teaching on praise. And I, I kind of need to repent about it because getting into it for this, studying it more closely, I discovered that yes, it is important to study as a response to how good and great God is, but it is so much more than that. With how it's presented in scripture, praise, along with thanksgiving, they're, I see them now as disciplines. They're disciplines that we do for our good and God's glory because they are a source of fuel. When we, when we do this, when we praise, when we give thanks, we are, it's a, we're tapping into something that creates this deep reservoir of joy inside of us. Joy that is muscular and stout and able to make us capable of enduring any circumstance. Being able to make it through and survive any circumstance, so no matter what. There are plenty of circumstances that we respond with praise to. I got the job. We won the game. Praise God. She said yes. Praise God. Right? The cancer's gone. The baby was born healthy. Praise God. And make no mistake, that is an appropriate thing to do. When you have good circumstances come your way, it is right for Christians to knee-jerk reaction to praising God. As James tells us, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father. So that is appropriate response. But it's not a difficult one for the Christian. There's this other thread of praise spoken of and exemplified in scripture that tells us praise is the appropriate called for response by the Christian even in the face of distinctively unpraiseworthy news. I mean, this is such a bold thing to say in scripture. It's it just, it, it would be ridiculous to expect anyone to believe it. Why would you put it in there if you're doing a creative writing project called the Bible? And expect that to be accepted. It, it's only not ridiculous if it's true. If there really is a way to go about this. The, this idea jumped off the pages at me with the text I introduced to you last week. There's many more. But it says, be joyful when? Always. When do we give the sacrifice of praise? Continually. In what circumstances do we give thanks? All circumstances. Strong language demanding in some way. Last week, I introduced you to a word, a Hebrew word, one in, of seven Hebrew words for praise that captures this particular kind of ridiculous praise called tauda. Tauda praise is in the midst of difficulty and even horror. It includes an element of surrendering to God's will, even when it's bad, and obeying God's desires, even when we don't like them. And it's foundation, and this is the key. I'm going to start here and I'm going to end here. This is the key to tout a praise. You cannot tout a praise without this right here. Trust. Trust for God. It has to be a real God that is trustworthy. And then that's not enough. You have to actually put trust there. That is the only way tout a praise is available to you. It's for our good 
and for God's glory, there is nothing that God wants more than your trust. There is nothing God wants more than your trust. You can't honor him in a higher way. You can't honor him at all. It's just lip service if you don't have trust. And that trust for you and as observed in the world is proven genuine. It's proven real only when it is firmly there in circumstances that decidedly do not call for it. That decidedly would make any normal person question God. It reminded me of the disciple Peter when he says in his little letter, he's talking about the greatness of the gospel and the eternal life that we have. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, he tells us why. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. And may result in what? Praise. Praise is so much more. It is a reaction to the greatness and the goodness of God. It is a reaction to what he's done for us in the gospel. But it is so much more than that. It is a praising of God for who he is and what he has already done as enough for us. If nothing else ever goes right. That will bring him glory. That's how people bring him glory. But I think it does something for us too. I'm telling you, most of you know, but some of you may not, a year and a half ago, my son was in the hospital fighting for his life. It was easy to praise God when we walked out of the hospital. (laughs) I could hardly help it. But when I got the phone call from my wife while I was in Houston, saying that his heart stopped, his breath stopped, he's in the hospital fighting for his life, and he may not make it, or he, worse, he may make it, but with deficits that are worse than death. Who in their right mind responds with praise? Who can respond to news like that with praise? Well, as it turns out, God's people can. I hope I've set it up. It sounds ridiculous, unrealistic, because that's what it is. And yet the Bible claims it's true. I'm going to give you three examples in Scripture. David first, King David. He wrote most of the Psalms. And there's one I found with, that uses this word tauta, that he does tauta praise. It, it has a little explanation of when this Psalm was written. It was when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Okay? So I went back. First Samuel, I believe, is where I found that. And I read the context. So, David has been anointed the future king of Israel. He was when he was a teenager. The current king, King Saul, was not okay with this. He, he was not okay with David going to take his throne. So he pulled David close and he worked in his household. And he, I mean, I think he had genuine love and esteem for David. But over time, the whole nation started seeing his anointed greatness and shouting out his greatness as compared to Saul as even greater. Jealousy takes root. Saul wants to end this. He's after David. He's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. David escapes. All of Israel's looking for David. And so uh, these are much less than praiseworthy circumstances for David, aren't they? Wouldn't it be natural for him to say, you anointed me king and look at the trouble you've got me in. Couldn't you uh, like handle this? It gets worse. 
So danger in danger and desperate, the safest place for him was not among the Israelites under King Saul, but among his enemies, the Philistines. So he goes to Gath where they live. But unfortunately, they recognize David. They say, isn't this the guy the Israelites sing that's greater than even Saul? This is a major trophy. Let's take him. Let's kill him. So David pretends to be insane. Like he has to pretend like he's crazy. That's what scripture says. He's a madman. He lets spit run down his face. He's marking on the city gates, making marks on it, being destructive, just trying to look harmless and someone they don't want to be around just to survive this situation. And it is in the midst of this that he writes this psalm. And he doesn't deny, and no one here is asking you to deny the legitimacy of your grief or your pain or your suffering. Quite the opposite. Take the mask off and be real and honest about it. We're not asking you to pretend. David doesn't. He starts like this. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. Record my lament, God. List my tears on your scroll. That's where he starts. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't paint on the smile and act like, praise God, I love what's happening. But in the course of a few pen strokes, a few verses, he quickly gets to this. I trust in the Lord. No circumstances have changed, church. I trust in the Lord and I praise him. My heart overflows with praise to God for his deliverance, his promises. His, he tr- there's the trust. He is finding his refuge in his trust for who God is, not for what's going on and what he will or will not do. And he says it, I always trust him. That has no weight until you're in a situation like this. Then you can say that. Then you can say that it can mean something. So I'm thanking you with all my heart, with gratitude for all you've done. So if you read from verse 1 to 13, you can see this very human journey that David takes. Even the emotional journey. He gives an honest account of what he's facing and then counters it with what his God has done and can do. Not what he knows he will do, but he trusts him. By the end... He finds refuge. No circumstances have changed. He finds refuge. He conquers his fear. And he can't seem to help but respond with what is deep down in his heart, even in these circumstances. Tauda. That's Tauda praise. The praise that comes not from situations we're in, but from his trust in God's goodness and greatness. Job. Job's who I thought of instantly last week when I learned this Hebrew word. He has to have had the worst day of any human being in history. Like the worst five minute span, uh, if we really get down to it. So Job is this very wealthy, cared for. He's got a great family. He's esteemed by all the nations around him. He's been granted this by God. Then one day, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. How would you react to this? He didn't have time to react because while he was still speaking, another messenger came. Said the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one that has escaped to tell you. 
He still didn't have time to respond because while he was still speaking, another messenger came. The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. All his wealth, evidently his esteem by his neighbors, crushed, gone. How would you react? It's not done. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house. Mighty wind swept and struck the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. What'd you do? What do you do? Like literally, what do you do when you get hit with bad circumstance or bad news? You get much lesser than this. It can just be someone pulling in front of you. What do you do? Here's what Job did. At this. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. He didn't deny that he was suffering. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be what? Praised. May the circumstances I'm in be praised? No. They're not praiseworthy. But he still is. In all this, Job didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. (laughs) Try to imagine having a day like this and responding like that. Who does that? Evidently, God's people do that. No one in the right minds does this. It's against human nature, and yet Job did it. David did it. How? How did they do it? I, I went a little further, and Job just seeing if I could find something that might allude to this. And in Job 31, he explains himself and kind of how he rolls in life, his theology. And he says that if he put his trust in these outward circumstances, that's his wealth, his power, even his family as the source of his stability, as the source of his life ultimately, that this would have been an unfaithfulness to God. That's what he said. But I kind of entered into that, and I'm adding this in here, but I want to suggest that if we do the same, if we put trust in our circumstances for our well-being and for our life and our stability, rather than have this thick, practiced, muscular, weighty trust in God, no matter what, then we're being unfaithful to ourselves. We're being unfaithful to ourselves because days like this, even days falling way short of this, is more than enough to steal our life. One more example, Paul. So a little background, the town of Philippi, Greece. There's this, there's this young girl who is um, tormented by an evil spirit. And evidently this has given her the power to predict the future. So her owners are making a lot of money off her, okay? So they live in Philippi. So just leave that right here. Paul and Silas are on a mission trip and they go on a mission trip to Philippi. They're going to share the gospel of Jesus there in Philippi, Greece. And while they're there, one of the days, they get up early and they decide to go out to pray. You know, they're in the middle of a mission trip. They want to connect with God. They go and pray. On their way to their prayer time, this girl shows up. And so, long story short, they do the right thing. They, They heal this tormented girl. Now, what does all this good get them? First of all, the owners of the girl assault them and drag them into town 
to the magistrates. The magistrates, they side against them. And they, as the case is being made, the whole community gets in on it and gets rallied up into a riot. And so they, the, the crowd, the community of Philippi, they strip them and they beat them. I don't know what was made up of that beating, but that's what scripture says happened. After that beating, the magistrates who allowed that to happen now do the official thing you do to a criminal. They take them and they have them flogged. They've been beaten, flogged, and you would think they'd just throw their limp bodies, maybe with a broken cheekbone, I don't know, at the end and say, get out of here, don't come back. Nope, they take him to the jail. Scripture makes a point to say to the deepest cell. So the deepest, darkest cell. And they don't just throw their bodies in there either. They go in and put the stocks on them. That's where they are. How would you react to this? Yeah, there's a lot of us, a lot of us, when we have something negative or unjust happen to us, we start with, I was just minding my own business. Right? I was just minding my own business when I got that phone call. I was just minding my own business when that car pulled out in front of me. I was just minding my own business when the boss called me to his office. But these guys, they have better than that. They were minding God's business. We were minding God's business. Three layers of good kingdom stuff they're doing. They're on a mission trip. They're going to pray during that mission trip. And then when they're interrupted with evil, they heal during that trip to the prayer time. Three layers of good kingdom stuff, God. And this is where we land? What would you do? How would you respond? I want you to try to imagine this. You know how they responded? You know. With worship. With the only kind of worship you can in that situation. Tauta worship. They did the same thing that I would imagine they have done if they had gone to Philippi, preached, and thousands came to Christ. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's how they responded. Church, can we consider that maybe there's something real about this? That how to praise is not what's required of us, but it's for us. That there's something in this kind of response to negative circumstances that's almost a secret sauce for, for God's people to be able to survive it. Yes, it's a discipline, but does it work? Does it do what I'm suggesting Scripture teaches? It taps into something. That there's something about reacting to negative, horrible, even tragic and altogether undesirable circumstances, distinctively unpraiseworthy circumstances with a focus on God's worthiness, God's goodness, God's greatness. And we put our trust in him even when there's nothing around us to do that with or because of as modeled by Job and David and now Paul. As a matter of fact, I want us to practice this today. The praise team would come on up here. And the rest of you, if you don't mind, I want to just ask you to close your eyes for a minute. Just take a breath and close your eyes. And I'm going to give you maybe the easiest assignment I've ever given you. I want you to think of a complaint you have right now. I want you to think about some situation you're in, some circumstance that is distinctly negative. It doesn't have to be horrible or tragic, just undesirable, bothersome, unwelcome not praiseworthy. And I don't want you to deny it. I want you to call it to mind and engage with it. Feel about it for a minute. We all have something, something going on. Health problem, financial struggle, relationship 
issue that we're worried about, tragic news that we're still not over. It can be recent or long ago. If you don't have anything, then let me just point you to what's going on in the world right now. Distinctly unpraiseworthy, not preferable, not good stuff, and use that. But most of us have something personal, something that lingers, that interrupts, that hangs on, that pulls us down. Maybe it's intense. doesn't have to be, but maybe it is something tragic that you just don't know what to do with. And I want us to do something today with it. Without ignoring or denying the thing you're thinking about, pretending it's not bad or or significant, I want us to practice deciding to respond with trust for God anyway, with praise. Let's praise the who. Not the what's going on, but the who in spite of what's going on. I don't know who this is for this morning, but I know there's many of us this is for. What's going on? I really want you to do this. Why? Because no matter what's going on, you can trust him. He's worthy, right? He's proven himself, correct? Does he have to do one more thing to be worthy of your trust? And because in this example of Paul, this is just amazing that they respond to this horrific circumstances and look what happens next. It doesn't always go this way, but it can That's the point. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, this, pause. This is, they are praising before this happens. They are praising before they know this will happen. But what happens is God shows up. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Do you see it? It was after they praised. It was when they responded with his worthiness that God showed up. There's no guarantee how he's going to show up. They didn't know and he didn't have to show up this way. They just know he's trustworthy. He knows what's best. And so they worshiped anyway without knowing it. I want us to engage here in holy rebellion against our human nature and respond to whatever that thing is with praise. Here's the most important thing today. It is the trust that defeats the fear, not the deliverance. It is the real, weighty, meaningful trust in a real, powerful, and good, and trustworthy God that gives you refuge, not the change in circumstances. Paul, I guess he frequented prisons. And he went another time in Rome. My understanding is he always wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel because it's the center of civilization as they knew it. And if, they, if he could have a powerful, meaty, weighty church there that's spreading the gospel, just commerce, and it could affect the world. And he did end up in Rome, but not as a preacher, as a prisoner. And so once again, he finds himself in jail. And at the end of the book, actually, that he's writing back to Philippi, okay, where he was in jail before, 
he says this. He's in jail again. He wants to be preaching, but he's in jail. And he says in the last chapter, Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, Paul is ridiculous. Who, who's, who's doing this? And he knew we would think this because he says it again. And he says he says it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. I know this is unbelievable. I'm rejoicing. You can rejoice. What makes that available? The circumstances? Now, he probably remembers his circumstances before. He rejoiced then too. And then the chains fell off. And a miracle happened. Not this time. Not this time. And yet, Tauda. Tauda secured him. Tauda refuged him. Gave him his refuge. He goes on and explains this trust. Because y'all know what these circumstances do to us. They cause anxiety. Jesus says, do not worry about your life. Another ridiculous thing to say. And yet he says it, I think with a smile, as if it's available. And Paul says it too. Do not be anxious about anything. All these anything and all things and all the time words. It leaves us no room. It's so simple. It's just not easy. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. You're right. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's not normal. It's beyond that. It's still real. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Another grace of God for you. And I'll ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around the room here just in case anyone has something you need to respond with interpersonally. Another grace of God that you can rejoice about is you do not have to carry it alone. You're not even supposed to. We're supposed to do this together. And that's what we get. You know, the, the part of Tauda praise that is like surrendering, that especially comes in when we have no control. Like there's nothing we can do. And there are some words that I hear frequently from people that is getting ever so close to Tauda, but is so miles away. Things like, whatever. It is what it is. You know, I can't do anything about it. You feel the, the weight? That's true. That's the surrender part. But it... It's only powerful and good and leads to rejoicing always when it's mixed with trust in God. That's the difference and that's the call for you today. Let's stand and let's praise this trustworthy God. And if we can help you in any way, please come.